Good morning, church. So we are in a series called Better. And uh, I have kind of two stories to start off today because I fell victim to it yesterday. That deal where I was thinking I wanted to learn how to do something better. And then three hours pass on YouTube and I'm really not any better off than I was. I was looking for a better way to back my truck in and hook up my trailer so I wouldn't have to do that thing where I back up two feet, get out of the truck, go see how I'm doing, adjust, get out of the truck, back it up, get out. Of the, and, and I watched videos for two hours and I don't know that I learned anything more except that there's a ton of gadgets I'm supposed to buy. Anybody else? Liars. The other story that came to mind was more of what I have experienced and heard this week uh, from church members um, in my own life. I bet there are a lot of us who are looking for hope, a better hope. There's some circumstance, some situation, something that's gone on in our lives that is going on in our lives, our family, our job, school, a relationship, a neighborhood, something that, you, that you're just trying to solve. And you kind of run out of options and YouTube's not going to help. I kind of wonder if some of us need a better hope. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. In our, uh, in our series, we've been talking about the, the supremacy of Christ, and the, the writer of Hebrews wants us to know some things, and so I called those the previouslys. I didn't know until this week that that was a noun. Do you know what that means? Previously on. So the guy on an anonymous quote, he says, I was late for the show. I missed the previous lease. Well, you don't want to miss the previous lease. So here are the previous lease in terms of where we've gone in this particular series. In case you've missed it, we're going to be in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6. I realize it's ambitious for me to try to do two chapters of Scripture in one Sunday morning, but hang on. If it feels like you're drinking out of a fire hose, you probably are. Previously, in Better, the writer of Hebrews said, hey, the supremacy of Jesus is just better than anything else you've tried. That's the first thing. He said, so don't be discouraged when you get tough times because, trust me, Jesus is better. And then secondly, he says, and the old ways weren't all that great. They're just old. And then thirdly, he says, be careful that you don't drift away from this new thing, grace, to the old thing, law, or you're probably going to get in trouble. I, I sort of rephrased them uh, this way. Uh, God is with me, which is better than trying to solve everything on my own. So chapter 1, he said, he said, I am with you. Jesus is with you. 
peace and blessing await me in heaven. Robert talked about rest. He talked about Sabbath rest and eternal rest. And, and we got to know, I, I've done way too many funerals lately, where if I didn't have a sense of hope to communicate with families, if I didn't have a sense of hope inside of me, I'm not really sure what I'd tell them. I would, I'm not really sure how you speak about somebody who has died unless you can speak of hope. God will guide me when I'm confused. Catch this part, which is better than having no direction but a lot of reaction. You ever thought about it when we're confused? We tend to react we, we tend to try to fix something right away, stop the pain, start the progress. Let me react to something. And, and, and so often it's ready, fire, aim, right? We, we're, we're not really sure what we're doing. We just need some forward motion. And it turns out to be backward motion because it's not direction. It's just reaction. The writer of Hebrews says, stop reacting to the daily circumstances, Stop just assuming because you can't see something right away. You're getting no relief from your pain right away. Stop just thinking you've got to abandon all this and go back to something you know, even though it wasn't working either. Then he says, oh, uh, go back, go back. God gave us a community of believers to help us stay strong. That, that's a core part of the message of Hebrews, that, that we don't have to do this alone. If so many of you are, are new to our church, I, I meet people every week, and, and I generally ask first time, second time, third time, how, how many times have you done this? You may be checking us out on the Internet. Here, here's the deal. He's given us this community to do this together. I can almost bet that if I describe to you what's going on in my family, there are a lot of you who are going through the same thing. I can almost describe, a guarantee that if you describe what's going on in your job, there are other people. That, that if you describe what's going on in your friendships, there are other people. That if you describe what's going on in your faith, there are other people. We are, we are a community, and, and the writer of Hebrews wanted to make sure that anybody knew that if you want to find hope, you find it in a community for two things. Number one, it's shared misery, and number two is shared faith. We, we know that other people are going through what we're going through, and somehow that makes us feel better because we can plot solutions, we can pray together, we can sing together, we can worship together. And if you're new to this community of faith, we're just a, a whole room full of broken people. And we're just, we're just, Mac, our former pastor used to say, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. And there's this sense of community that draws us together. And then the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure we understand that. And then he gets all the way to chapter 5, and he says, hey, listen, there is a better hope. I like this quote. Um, if you know who Hal Lindsey is, you know that I like some of what he said, and a lot I don't care that much about. But in this particular case, I think he's dead on. It's one of my favorite quotes ever. A uh, man can live 40 days without food, eight days, three days without water, eight minutes without air, and I usually amend his quote to say no seconds without hope. If I don't have hope that what I'm going through is going to get better, if I don't have hope that the pain will subside, the suffering will end, the solutions will come, if I don't have hope, I really got nothing. And, and again, I don't know what I would tell families 
who are grieving over a lost loved one if I couldn't tell them of the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal rest, as Robert talked about last week. And so he's saying here that there is a better hope, and he takes an awfully long time to get there. Now, here's my definition of hope. Hope is looking ahead to what God has while paying attention in the present to what he tells us. So I I want big picture, right? The writer of Hebrews. I know that there's encouragement. I know that there's an end to this. I know that there's a a reason for this. I know that there's a purpose for it. I may not be able to see it now. I may not be able to solve it now. But I know there's something out there that I can grab onto or at least somebody else that I can hold hands while we face it together. And so it's holding on to what he has for us but still paying attention to what he's telling us along the way. I don't want to get so caught up in my misery that I I don't pay attention to what God is telling me, that I don't pay attention to the words of Scripture, to the words of a song, to the counsel of a friend. I I want to be uh, all about the future and what God has for me in the future, but I also want to be all in to what he's telling me along the way. And then the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Let's move beyond the elementary teachings. Let's move on to maturity, that that I'm going to get better at handling this kind of stuff as I get better acquainted with God through His Scripture, through songs, through conversations with friends, through teaching, through podcasts, through whatever it is that is allowing me to draw close to God. That's that's sort of what we're finding and experiencing God. If you are are new to us, there are about 400 of us who are involved in in a a Bible study called Experiencing God, and we're we're meeting in groups, and the sort of the, the marching order or the theme of this whole thing is to see where God is working and join him there. So the assumption is that God is working always and that he's drawing us to what it is that he's doing and he'll reveal in us what we can do to be a part of it. And it may be to alleviate suffering. It may be to promote social justice. It may be to expand the gospel. It may be to come alongside somebody's hurting. It may be to use some ability that God has given us in order to extend mercy to somebody. Whatever it is, we're, we're trying to learn to pay attention to what he's telling us. And then back there in chapter 4, Robert talked about this verse, the Word of God is living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, spirit, joints, marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So he's using the Scripture, he's using the words to songs. Uh, uh, Robert is really careful to curate songs that allow us to, to experience Scripture even as we sing it. And so he's teaching us, he's, he's showing us how he's working, and he's inviting us into that reality. So here's the deal. The word hope occurs five times in Hebrews, and Hebrews, of course, was written in Greek. The Hebrew idea for hope is the Hebrew word tikvah, and usually it's put with the preface or the preposition ha, which is the definite article before it. That's all I can do in terms of grammar. Ha tikvah means the hope. And it's not just this pipe dream. When the Hebrews said ha they said the hope, 
the expectation. God has said he would move, he will move. God has said he will work, he will work. God has said he will heal, he will heal. And it's this, this, this grasping on to a certainty of what's going to happen in the future. And so then the writer of Hebrews, of course, wrote in Greek, and, and in Hebrews 3, he says, we hold on to hope. In 6, he says, we hope till the end. And so you can see that it's not this, this, this vapor kind of hope. It's, it's based on something solid. It's, it's kind of like when, when, when you turn a light switch on in your house, you, you don't hope that the lights are going to come on. All of your past experience teaches you that unless there's some kind of mammoth storm outside, it's the lights are going to come on. It doesn't come into your mind to question that. That's, that's the hope that the Hebrews and the Greeks shared. Hebrews 6, we take refuge in his plan. We take hold of the hope of his promises. One of my life verses is from Philippians chapter 3, and, and Paul is writing there to the church, but I love the way it's phrased. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. That when I gave my life to Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, he takes hold of you. When you begin to be a follower of Christ, when you say, okay, I, I, I get it, God, my way is not working out very well. I need hope. I need that sense of what you're doing. I need to be part of your plan. So, so I'm in. He takes hold of you. And he says, I've got a job for you. And that job may change. There may be lots of jobs over the years. Believe it or not, in a former life, I was a youth minister. And before that, I was a mechanic. I mean, he, he, he's got lots of things for us to do. And so we, he takes hold of us, and we press on so we can take hold of that which, for which he took hold of us. That's for Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, I'm sorry, says grace allows us a better hope in Jesus. And remember, the writer of Hebrews is aiming all this stuff to Jewish Christians who are still trying to get over this system of sacrifices that they really, really loved. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, the Hebrews were all into sacrifice. We're going to sacrifice something for a love offering, a sin offering, a guilt offering, a grain offering, any excuse. We're going to sacrifice something. And we're going to bring it to God with the hope that he will give us favor in some area. He'll forgive us of something. He'll bless us with something. Sometimes we just bring something because we're happy and we want to make an offering to God. Let's kill something. And so the writer of Hebrews said, you guys are really, really fixated on that. And that sort of brings us to the introduction that I'm going to get to in a second. Hebrews 10 he says our confession of hope is made with total confidence. And then in Hebrews 11, it becomes not a noun but a verb. Only time this verb is used. When he says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not yet seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. And so the, the concept of hope a better hope. It runs throughout Hebrews, but we're kind of going to focus our attention on just two chapters, five and six. Now, let me set the stage. So, part of this sacrificial system involved a guy 
who's called the high priest. Now, there's lots of priests, okay, lots of priests. But there was only one guy who was the high priest in Israel at any one time. And that one guy had to be a descendant of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. You can look it up in Exodus. And he had to be from the tribe of Levi. And he had to be appointed. That's three things, but two of them were kind of the same. He had to be appointed. He had to be, God sort of had to to give the old high priest a sense of, you're going to pass the mantle to this new guy. And so he had to be appointed. Nobody got to pick, hey, vote on me. I want to be the high priest. And the high priest had a job, pretty much one job. He had to go into the most sacred place in the temple once a year to offer a sacrifice. Here we go again for the sin of all of the people in the land, all the sins that they had committed, would commit, were thinking about committing, thought nobody else knew they committed. He, he, would, he would offer some bloody sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation. They called that the day of atonement. The word atonement means forgiveness of sin. And so this guy, the high priest, he'd go in there once a year But the writer of Hebrews picks up there in chapter 5, he said, here's the deal. Every high priest, verse 1, and I didn't put all the verses up here because there's just so many of them. So look up Hebrews 5 on your swipey thing or your Bible or even the Bible that's in the chair thing in front of you. It's in the, there's this much and then Hebrews is right there. So every high priest is chosen from among men. So he says he's a human. He says he is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So he goes in once a year. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently. I love the way it says it. This is the English standard. He says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. That's us. He says, since he himself is beset with weakness. In other words, the high priest is just like us. He's a human that got picked because of his family line, because of his tribe, because of his availability, because of whatever. He got picked, but he's just a guy like we're a guy. So the writer of Hebrews, and of course the, 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 the Hebrew readers of this are kind of gasping, right? The high priest, oh no, he's not normal. Yeah, he is. Verse 3, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, not just the sins of the people. He, he has to say to God, okay, what I'm about to slaughter is for me as well as for all these wayward and ignorant people. And so it says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And then he switches gears to talk about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the same way. He didn't make himself a high priest, but he was appointed by God. And then he quotes Psalm 2, you're my son, today I've begotten you. He quotes Psalm 110, you are a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. And all of us go, I can't spell it, I can't say it, what in the world are you talking about? What is a Melchizedek? Well, I'm going to give you the answer next week. 
because the writer of Hebrews introduces this. He drops the Melchizedek bomb twice at the end of chapter 5, which is the same number of times that he's mentioned in the entire Old Testament. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of it. He was before the Ten Commandments, before Moses, before Aaron, before this priesthood thing, before the system of sacrifices. He was what the Bible calls the priest and king of Salem. You know that as Jerusalem. And so he was the king and priest of Jerusalem. It's the only time that a king and a priest were ever together. You had kings who weren't priests. You had priests who weren't kings. But you didn't have any of them together except for that guy. And so for, for the writer of Hebrews, he says that this Jesus is both priest and king like this guy was. So he's different than all of those other priests who offered all of those other sacrifices, who atoned for all the sins of the people. Jesus is different because he is both priest now and king forever. And the the cool part of that is the very end of of chapter uh, 4, where he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The priests of old, they dealt with judgment. God, don't judge us. Here's a sacrifice. The kings of old dealt with justice. I'm a king. I reign on the throne of judgment. But Jesus, according to this, reigns on a throne of grace. How cool. He's flipping the script. And the the writer of Hebrews is pleading with the readers, hey, don't go back to that system of sacrifice. Jesus is better. Okay, it gets dark here in a minute, but but stay with me. So, verse 7, chapter 5, he talks a little bit more about Jesus. He said he suffered. He offered up prayers with loud cries and tears, probably thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he was able to, uh, to him who was able to save him from death, God could have, but he didn't. He was heard because of his reverence, and he was a son, so he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There he goes again. What does it mean? Well, the writer of Hebrews thought about something else, so he goes ADD for about a chapter, and he doesn't pick up with Melchizedek again until chapter 7. So you got to come back next week. Instead, he goes, before I talk about that, before I, I go all about why the high priest of old has been replaced by this priest and king, I need to talk to you about your spiritual condition. And so it's like hard stop. It's like not going there right now. I'll get to Melchizedek here in a chapter or so. But right now, I need to talk about you guys. And so it's like this this incredible hard stop where he says, uh, I, I'm going to talk about something else. But the backdrop is we're still pursuing that better rest, a Sabbath rest and an eternal rest. Now, again, here's the review previously. The Sabbath rest is all about what is finished. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, He rested, and that seventh day became known as the Sabbath. So when the work is done, 
it is finished. That's Sabbath rest. When we feel like our work is done, we, he built in a Sabbath to let us know that in God the work is done. The eternal rest part is where Jesus was hanging on the cross, and the very last thing he said was, it is finished. So God pronounced his work done and called it Sabbath. Jesus pronounced his work done and called it salvation. So he died once and for all on the cross, no more high priest going into the secret place to kill a goat. He said, it is done, no more, now and forever. And that's where Paul said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Based on that, I never have to worry that God will forgive me, that this goat is acceptable, that this lamb is unblemished. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And as John said in his gospel, behold, Jesus is the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so we get to, to worship the king and priest who sits not on a throne of judgment, but on a throne of grace. Well, how can we learn about that? Glad you asked that question. That was on the mind of the writer of Hebrews when he says, you know what? We got to draw near in faith. We, we got to pull closer. Once he, Jesus, was made perfect, he's the source of eternal salvation. He was designated by God, and there's that word again. But first, you got to do a little reflection. And so at the very end of chapter 5, he said, about this, Melchizedek, I got a lot to say, but not right now, because you are dull of hearing. What? I want to know about Melchizedek. No, he says, wait, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. Oswald Chambers said, spiritual maturity is not reached by the passing of the years, but by obedience to the will of God. He, he, he said to us that, that, that the Word was, was there for discernment, thoughts, intentions of the heart, that, that we should be learning along the way. We should be in these small groups experiencing God, learning how God works, seeing what's in there. But instead, he says, we have much to say, but it's hard because you're not even trying to hear anymore. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted to the teaching of righteousness. And it's really cool what he goes on to say here. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and move on to maturity. And then he tells us what it is. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Does that mean we're not talking about repentance anymore? Hold on. He says, well, what about uh, ceremonial washings like baptism and, and stuff like that, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment? He says, hang on, if, if time permits, I'll go back to that. But you shouldn't need to go back to that. I don't know if any of you have had the incredible privilege of teaching a teenager how to drive a car. It's amazing. 
uh, taught two children and rededicated my life every time I got in the car with them. But I'm trying to imagine, uh, and I started to say the key in the car, but very few of you know what a key does to a car, nor do you know about writing checks or dialing telephones, but that's another message. But the push-button thing, right? So you got your key, you put it somewhere in the car, or if you're a woman, it's buried deeply in the bottom of your purse, never to be found again. But fortunately, it still works till the battery goes out. And the whole deal is that you push the button. And so let's say you get the teenager, you get them in the car, and you say, push the button. They do. Nothing happens. Oh, push the button with your foot on the brake. Oh, starts. Awesome. Turn it off. We'll do more tomorrow. <laughs> Next day, push your foot on the brake, push the button. Good job. We'll do more tomorrow. Push the button next day. Start the car. Turn it off. Push the button the next day. Turn it What is eventually this teenager going to tell you? Maybe it's going to give you the obvious. The purpose of this thing is not to start the car, but to go somewhere. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The purpose is not just to start the car. Yeah, learn about repentance. Learn that if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, that He waits for you to say, I want to walk with you. I want to live life with you. Come into my heart. Let's go somewhere. Of baptism, yes, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and you've never been baptized as a believer, as one who is a spiritual adult who said, I have grasped one of this, you need to be baptized. But that's pushing the button to start the car. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you guys have heard all about repentance. You've heard all about baptism. You've heard all about the law. You've heard all about judgment. You've heard that you don't need a high priest anymore to go into the place and offer sacrifices for you, that Jesus did that once and for all. Now let's move on. And he says this, God permitting, we will do so. He says, we should move on The very last part of chapter 5, solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good and evil. That's what we're trying to do with experiencing God. We're trying to figure out where God's working. I want to distinguish what's, what's good advice, what's bad advice, what's godly advice, what's worldly advice. What is me just trying to imitate the culture and fix everything myself like I used to do and like I still sometimes do? And what about it is trusting Jesus for the hope that I have because I know that God has something for me. I know that He's got something for me. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, we've got to move on. And then he gets a little bit dark. You got your Bible or your phone. Verse 4 is problematic. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Stay with me. Who have tasted the heavenly gift and who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the ages to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, it is impossible. Now, people read that, and appropriately, they're scared to death. You should be. You, you, you should be. 
If there is a thought that you taste the heavenly gift, you've been enlightened, you've shared in the Holy Spirit, you've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, you've seen His power at work, and then somehow you've fallen away, the Greek word there for impossible means impossible. It is not a a reality that you could come again to Christ. That's heavy. That's that's a hard, hard paragraph. And people have taken it a number of different ways. Uh, Number one, uh, you you just fall from grace. You you get unsaved. Number two, uh, well, maybe they weren't really believers to start with. Number three, maybe it's a hypothetical situation. Maybe you're saying, if this could happen, and maybe it's some combination of all of them. Where I land on this is that I think that it is impossible for Jesus to release me. I take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. I make a lot of mistakes. I say things I shouldn't. I do things I shouldn't. As Paul said in chapter 7 in Romans, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I ought to do, I don't. The things I shouldn't do, I do. So what does it mean? Do you remember who Hebrews is for? Do you remember that it's for Jewish people who are trying to say, I don't want to stick out in culture. I want to blend in. They were okay with the way I used to do things. They were okay with the system of sacrifices. They were okay with the high priest who went in every year. They thought we were strange, but they permitted it. Now we're talking about something radical. Now we're talking about something that's going to replace all of that. The law is giving away to grace. Condemnation is giving away to forgiveness. I can't wrap my mind around it because I'm immature in my faith. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you insist on holding on to your control and not yielding control to this Jesus who wants to be in your life and be the Lord of your life. If you insist in the old ways, you're kind of done here. You're, You're not really on the page. And the language of falling away and things like that, that's, that, that's okay, but, but the essence of what he's trying to say is that these Jewish people wanted to go back to their old system of solving their sin problem on their own, entrusting it to a human. Well, there's one thing that's, that's the same between the old priest and the new priest. You can't declare that you're a priest yourself. You have to take your sins somewhere. And either you take them to a human who's going to slaughter a goat, or you take them to the cross where Jesus died. God demonstrates His love for us, and that while we were still messed up, Christ died for us. And so it's sort of like the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's a scary thing that I tell you, but let me follow it with a word of hope. And he says, even though we speak like this, Even though, and and I could say the same thing, even though I've made a lot of you very uncomfortable this morning, I want to give you a word of hope. We're convinced of better things in your case. 
We think that you've grasped that Jesus is priest and king and all that Melchizedek stuff we'll talk about next week, next chapter. I'm convinced that you understand this and that you're just being tempted by circumstances. You're, you're tempted by your own sin. You're guilty. You're shameful. You, you just can't wrap your mind around this grace that I'm talking about. Don't abandon that. Grab onto that. I'm convinced that you have already laid hold of better. And he goes on. God sees what you're doing. He, he knows of your love for him. He knows of your justice that you try to extend to others. He knows all of that, and he's not ignoring it. You have shown him as you have helped people and continue to help them. And so he ends with this. He says, so you have this hope. We have this hope. You're not in danger of falling from grace. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. You get it? Please hear it. It's not the priest that goes behind the curtain. It's the hope. It's the hope. Hope. It's the, the steadfast fastening on to the reality of what's going to happen in the future, that Christ died once and for all for all of us who would apprehend it. And we get to take to our high priest our sin, our brokenness, our guilt, our shame, our relationships, our family, our work, our anxiety, our fear. We get to take all of that to him. And he takes that hope of resurrection power, the hope of eternal rest, the hope of Sabbath rest. He takes it all. And he gives us this anchor Verse 20, last verse, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become the high priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. So, got to come back next week. Here's kind of the cliff notes. He says, you have to know me. You don't have to know me through a priest. You have to know me. And if you know me, you have to love me. We've, we've discovered that in the Experiencing God groups, that, that, that a love relationship is what he calls us to, not to do something heroic, but to love and be loved. So if we know him, we love him. If we love him, we begin to trust him. We begin to, to, to leap into his arms like a baby leaps into the Father's arms. We begin to trust Him that my situation, my circumstances, my shame, my guilt, my crummy whatever it is, that all of the stuff that just is tying me up in knots, I can bring to you in trust that there is a hope for something better. Don't know how it's all going to work out. I just know that I'm looking at the record in the Scripture. I'm looking at what you've told me. I'm looking at what people have experienced. And I'm going to know you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to hope in you. Would you bow your heads?
to know God and be known by him, to love God and be loved by him is a forever kind of thing. It starts with a simple, simple response. God has already done all the work. He is calling you, John 6, 44 says, he's calling you to himself. And if you have never said to him, I want to follow you, Jesus, maybe it begins with a prayer this simple. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I don't know how I'm going to trust you, but I want to. I don't know how I'm going to love you, but I want to. Please help me to learn the things I need to learn, be around the people I need to be around so that I can grow in this relationship and move past milk to solid food. Amen. Maybe you said that today. Maybe you're still trying to figure it out. Maybe you're, you're still reluctant to let go of the old ways of you solving everything and giving it to God. I'd like to challenge you today. We have greeters out in the lobby at the connection corner. We have pastors all over the place. We have friends that are sitting on the, the row with you, maybe somebody you don't know. And, and if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never been baptized, if you've never had that, that sense of resolve that you were putting away the old and you're grabbing onto the new for the hope of the Sabbath rest and the eternal rest, God, I want that. If you've never done that, would you begin that conversation today? There are people out in the lobby that can lead you through that conversation. We pastors hang around all the time. Begin that conversation today. If this is your first time in a long time at church or, or you're just trying to get back in the groove, maybe it's just a reminder that the old way of trying to fix everything on your own, it, it's really not working. Don't know how it's going to work out for you. If I, if I was to promise you white teeth and straight hair or hair, I would be lying. I don't know how he's going to work it out for you. Oh, but what? A great adventure. Oh, Father, guide us in your name.